And that became our concept of the freedom number. What do you have to own in performing assets to match your paycheck so that you can live the life you want, whether or not you want to do your day job or not? Now, I'm not saying the day job's not great, and a lot of people realize their dreams through their day job, and that's amazing. But if you are doing something you're not passionate about and you don't want to do it, what would it mean for you to have passive income supporting your lifestyle so then you can pursue your dreams? This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today, I'm here with Natalie Morris. Natalie is a broadcaster, writer, speaker, and co-founder of Morris Invest. Previously, she was a news anchor and technology reporter for NBC, CBS, and The Today Show. Natalie, congratulations. You are killing it. Thank you. I'm trying. It doesn't always feel like that, but it's so nice to hear someone say that to you. (laughs) So recently you achieved financial freedom for your family, and you want to help empower other women to do the same thing. I'd love to hear a bit about your story, your career path, and how you have achieved financial freedom. Right. So the majority of my career was as a broadcast news anchor or a news correspondent for network TV. And my husband and I, we when we got married, we both had pretty good salaries at networks. I was at CBS and he was at Fox. And we really planned our lives to live this dual income lifestyle. And we had so many things along the way in the first few years of our marriage that made us reevaluate where we were going. Some of them were kind of pain points, things we hadn't intended to happen. He had had some investments that he had invested in, real estate investments that were speculative, that were not very good at all, ruined his credit. I lost my job soon after we had a baby. And so we were really forced to reinvent how we felt about wealth building because of these things, which felt like negative things. And you know, so often we all learn this in life, when things happen to you that you don't want, there's usually a reason that's pushing you in a direction that you will grow. Of course, I couldn't see that at the time. I thought it was horrible. I was one of those dumb ladies who thought, oh, I'll just have a baby and then do everything that I did after the baby comes with the baby, which works for about, right. (laughs) Everyone thinks that though, right? I mean, it works for about two months when they're in a carrier and then they start making noise and eventually speaking and wanting things and having needs of their own. How dare they be little people? Um, So, you know, I was really fortunate that I was able to see these things as growth opportunities. And I remember sitting at my desk one day and thinking to myself, okay, I don't have a paycheck anymore. This really was how I valued myself. And I didn't realize how bad it would make me feel. I knew that in broadcast, you have high highs and low lows, right? You can do a great piece on network TV and then people think you're fabulous. And then the next day, the phone doesn't ring because it's a different news cycle. And I was prepared for that. I thought, okay, there's going to be some great jobs and then there'll be some times when no one's calling me. So that I'll be prepared for. But the lack of a paycheck, I wasn't prepared for. My husband still had his job, so we were okay, but I I wasn't okay. I really felt like, oh my gosh, I have no worth here. Like, yes, I'm a good mom, taking care of these kids, I take it seriously. And I realized I didn't want to go back to a full-time job once I had been home with my son, and then I got pregnant with our second. And so... I remember, like I said, sitting at my desk and thinking, okay, if I'm not making money 
in a paycheck, I'm going to figure out how to make money with the money we have. I'm going to study personal finance and become a rock star and just rock out what we've got. And that will be how I contribute to our wealth. And so at the time, I had a freelance contract at CNBC. So it was easy for me to be immersed in money. But it wasn't long before, once you start to really study personal finance, you realize the stock market is a way for people who work in the stock market to get rich. The stock market is not a way for most people to get rich. But they make this play on you like, oh, your 401k is the only way that you can really invest and give us that money and we'll invest it in high fee funds and we'll be making money off of your 401k. And so I had to completely shift my paradigm And my husband and I, I had been raised by entrepreneurs who really believed in using your money to buy performing assets. And so I I understood it. I had some real estate, but I didn't take it as seriously until we became a family. And then I was like, okay, we're a family. This is a business. If we want to achieve financial freedom, we have to think of our financial situation as a business, create goals, use the skills we use in our careers and execute on those goals, leadership you know, team building, all of these things need to be employed inside of my family for us to thrive. And my husband was really on board with that. He tends to be very creative about investments. He can find good investments. That's his skill. And I can manage the money. You know, I like like that um, James Bond movie when he meets Vesper on the train and she sits down and she's like, I'm the money. And that's sort of, that's me. That's who I am. I'm the person who manages the money. I can see it like how it will work, how it will affect our balance sheet and our cash flow. And he's the one who can find the great deal. So it ended up being a great partnership. And so, you know, we we were thinking about how do we use the dollars we have now to become performing assets. And so we said, you know, let's revisit Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because my parents had had me read it when I was young, and he had read it before as well. But we were going on a road trip, and he's like, why don't you just read it out loud while the kids sleep in the back? And I was like, all right. <laughs> So we read it and we were like, yeah, you know, there was there was something about it that really triggered something inside of us. So one thing that I think about a lot is is Robert Kiyosaki, the author of that book, says, the rich buy assets and the poor buy liabilities. And I looked at our balance sheet and what we owed versus what we owned. And most of our money was going towards paying down those liabilities. Not actually even paying them down, just paying them, just sort of like keeping the mortgage. The like like the your mortgage. mortgage, your car payment, your student loans, all of that stuff, right? So most people are going to work every day to pay for their liabilities. And the wealthy don't do that. The wealthy take every dollar that comes in and think, how do I use this to buy an asset? And beyond that, a performing asset. And so I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I don't want to, you know, so basically what you're paying for, what your dollars are going for when you're paying off just your bills, right, are the bank. You're paying banks. And Wall Street's making money on the fact that we don't buy our own performing assets. Now, Robert Kiyosaki's way of buying performing assets was real estate, and my husband was already in love with the idea of real estate, even though he'd gotten burned, even though he had an investment that ruined his credit. So, you know, because he was still at the network, he was in contract negotiation about, mm, I want to say three or four years ago, two contracts ago. And he was really nervous because they weren't calling his agent back. Now, they really liked him, but he was not a squeaky wheel. They just, you know, couldn't be bothered to tell him we are going to renew his contract. And that really weighs on you. You're thinking, oh my gosh, am I going to be without this paycheck? What am I going to do? At the time, we had two or three real estate investments. And I said, what if we owned enough in real estate and passive income 
that next contract time, it didn't matter whether they offered you a contract or not. And he jumped out of his chair and he went to his whiteboard and he took out a you know dry erase pen and he's like, how would we do that? Let's make that happen. And that became our concept of the freedom number. What do you have to own in performing assets to match your paycheck so that you can live the life you want, whether or not you want to do your day job or not? Now, I'm not saying the day job's not great and a lot of people realize their dreams through their day job and that's amazing. But if you ha- are doing something you're not passionate about and you don't want to do it, what would it mean for you to have passive income supporting your lifestyle so then you can pursue your dreams? And so this year we actually hit our freedom number and my husband was able to leave his job. And so now the two of us are, you know, as we go into the new year, we're thinking, okay, how do we want to help other people do this? How do we want to inspire other people to run their family finance like a business, to create goals and execute on those goals and see where they can go. And then they can turn their attention into whatever their dreams are, right? And so I relate to you because I'm a journalist who then had to become in control of my brand, which is not something we're taught to do. Mm -hmm. But also my goals now are to teach people that what you see in the commercials, like the banking commercials, is not for wealthy people. That's for people who are just going to stay middle class and, and walk the line their whole life, right? You cannot save your way to wealth. You just can't. The average 401k withdrawal is about $90,000 a year. Plus, it's taxed at your tax rate when you retire. So how are you going to live on $90,000 a year for a 20-year retirement? That's not the way. You have to completely change your mindset about finance in order to thrive. And you don't have to do it my way. You don't have to invest in real estate, although we help people do that. But really, we did not use any one trick to find our way to financial freedom. We just used all the tricks. Like We used a home equity line of credit to pay down our primary mortgage. We used a 401k withdrawal, not a withdrawal, rather a loan, to buy an investment property. We used private money. We, you know, We've used so many different tricks. And so we try and teach people that you just need to think about finance creatively because that's how the wealthy do it. So I've just given you a big story. You can ask me any questions now. You know, what's interesting, I was just at a conference for my day job as an antitrust journalist, and they were talking about because there have been so many mergers in banking that there are not community banks anymore and how that makes it much harder for the average person to get that loan right, to do that investment or to start their business. So it's kind of interesting getting around that with the creative ways that you did that. But it was an interesting thing that I'm thinking about lately, how it's much harder to get that little bit of financing to try to finance your dream or finance an investment uh, than it used to be. Yeah. I became aware of a woman named Susan Lassiter-Lyons, and she's a real estate investor out of Denver. And she wrote a book called Getting the Money, about how to find private financing to fund your deals. And I read her book, and I think it was a real epiphany for me because I had never thought about not using traditional banking. And her whole thing is like, you can find money in all different kinds of ways. You can structure deals any way you want. Basically, you know, if you have a dream, you can find the money, here's how. And she gives you very specific steps. And I thought, this is amazing because 
the banking industry would have you think that there's only one way to go, just on their straight and narrow path. And this lady has done, I don't know, she owns like 500 doors now, and she hit her freedom number recently. She's moving to Palm Springs. She became my friend because I, I reached out to her, and I'm like, your book changed my whole thinking. Because... Money can be something that you approach creatively like an art project. You just have to see it. I'm not the kind of person to think like that. I have to convince you. I'm a Virgo. We need things a certain way, you know, like I like spreadsheets and folders and file labels. And to think money doesn't follow this linear path was a big change for me. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I know so many people who have dreams that they want to pursue but just cannot afford to leave their paycheck. Yeah. So you talk about so many people that have side hustles. I mean, that's like the new, right? It's such a common phrase now, the side hustle. Yeah. I love how the younger millennial generation is doing it, which is good because when you're younger, then there's more ability to do that. But I'm in my 40s and I know a lot of people at my stage of life who are trapped by, like you said, the liabilities. The, yeah. Even I still have some student loans from my law school degree. You know, your loans, your mortgage, your car payments, and just that monthly overhead. And they don't feel like they have any room to take that big risk and pursue their dream, pursue the job that they really want to do or the passion that they have been wanting to do forever, which on this show, we've learned that when you do what you're passionate about, that's when you start to kill it. Yeah, It's holding a lot of people back. I love this idea of your freedom number and of getting to the point where you can have the freedom to pursue your dreams in that way. Right. One step, if you feel like, oh my gosh, all my money is going into my liabilities, one thing you can do is start to look at your balance sheet. This is one thing that I I like to harp on a lot is you should always have a balance sheet just like a company does. What are your assets? What are your liabilities? And then subtract the sum of the two, right? So that's your net worth. So when you look at each line on your balance sheet, there's a way to exploit each line. Either take your assets and explode them or take your liabilities and minimize them. And when you're thinking about making sure that your dollars are not only going into your liabilities... You can think, you know, what I like to do is I list my liabilities and I list them by interest rate. And then I think, can I do better than that? And so whenever I get like a freelance job or, or, or I go somewhere and I get a big paycheck that, you know, it's not a part of my budget, I'll put it straight into my primary mortgage because I want to lower the amortization of my loan, right? So bang, I've just knocked off some, a big chunk of liabilities that's claimed my money for years in advance. A home equity line of credit, we employed that skill because we wanted a lower interest chunk of money to throw at the higher interest chunks of money, right? So there are a lot of ways you can sort of, I like to think of liabilities like a teeter-totter. So you Take what's on the heavier end of the interest, like put one financial product on one end of the teeter-totter, put another financial product on the other end, and then just sort of like let them see which one's heavier and knock out the heavier one so that your dollars are not spoken for by your liabilities. Because that's what really traps people. People are so trapped in pain for their liabilities and it doesn't have to be like that. And you know, my dad taught me really young. I was shopping for a car. And I had saved up the down payment and I was like, well, you know, this car service that I think I wanted, I wanted one of those cheap cars they advertised to kids. I I can't remember the name of it now. It was like, it was in like all the teen magazines. I was like, I want this one. And he was like, the car company is offering this loan and so it will be $200 a month. And he was like, yeah, but that's their offering. He's like, you can find a loan somewhere else. And I'm like, well, no, this is where I'm buying the car. And he goes, no, Natalie, you're paying money for money. 
Right. And so, yes, someone should be paid for giving the risk of giving you money to buy this asset, but you don't have to pay the maximum amount. So you need to make sure that what you pay to someone for lending you money for this asset is as low as possible, and then you play the teeter-totter game. Can you find somewhere else? Most people don't realize, what if you took a loan out of your 401k, which, oh my gosh, people gasp when you say this because the financial industry has done a great job of making you think it's the holy grail, that you can't touch it. But you can take a loan up to $50,000 or 50% the value of the 401k, and you pay that loan back through your paycheck, and you pay yourself interest. So think about this. If you have a high student interest debt, let's say it's $20,000 at 17%, I don't know, 12%, I think is more common, right, for student loans. What if you have a 12% student loan of $20,000? What if you took that out of your 401k, that $20,000, and told the, the 401k custodian, say Fidelity or whatever, you said, okay, I'm going to take this out for two years and I'll pay myself back a 4 or 5% interest rate. It's like a market-based interest rate that you have to agree to. So then you take that $20,000, you knock away your debt, so you've just knocked out a huge liability, and now you're paying yourself as the banker. You're not paying the student loans, the 12%. You've just taken 12% interest out of your life, and now the 4% interest that's going back into that debt that's still now to yourself. Now you're the banker. You make that interest, not the bank. So I think people don't think like that. You just think like, this is the one product that I'm obligated to, and this is another, and this is another, right? And so right. I think you know that's just kind of a simple, creative way to make sure your dollars are not going towards a liability. That's very interesting. I love this idea of being more strategic. And I also am just really excited about getting women to focus on financial issues I had on this show Jen Sincero, who wrote the book You're a Badass, mm-hmm. and then she wrote a book called You're a Badass at Making Money. Yeah. And it's a lot about getting in the mindset of welcoming money into your life, right? Like yeah. so many yeah. people have all these hangups, these like subconscious hangups about money. And I think women a lot of the times do even more because they haven't been raised with this cultural stereotype of your value is in breadwinning. Right. You know what I mean? So they, yeah. Even though women actually tend to be the ones that, manage the family household budgets more than men, actually. Yeah. Like seeking wealth and being like, this is an important thing to focus on. There's even like a, an investment gap, right? I mean, Sally Krawcheck, who I also had on this show, talks a lot about the investment gap, and that's why she started this Elevest. Right. But I think, you know, just getting women to focus on this is so important for advancing women in general. Well, you and I work in the media, and so we know what messages are aimed at us and which messages are not. And if you look at your Pinterest boards, right, what are the kind of promoted pins around, like it's all around budgeting. And that bothers me a lot because they know that women manage the passwords for the utility accounts and the bank accounts, and we pay the bills, right? By and large, it's us that does that. But bill pay is not wealth planning. Bill pay is just the deliverables that you do every month. And so I feel like you know that's something I sort of encountered in my suburban life once we left the city and we had two kids. I realized these women are handling the budgets, 
but they stop there. And so that's become one of my catchphrases is don't stop at bill pay. You're only doing half the job then. You need to take that money and build with it. You need to do the wealth building, not just the bill paying. And I was doing that when we first got to the suburbs. Makes you feel like crap. I really felt like, oh, you know, I would go to Target for laundry detergent and I'd be like, well, can I buy the one that's non-toxic or should I you know, buy the cheaper one because, and you have all of these conversations with yourself when you make a purchase mm-hmm. like that. Am I worth it? Do I need to scrimp? I, you know, when you buy the cheapest thing that will probably be made of all kinds of toxins and give your kid eczema, you know, <laughs> like when you make these kind of cheap budget purchases, a lot of times that's what you're telling yourself about your worth. Like, I better not. I didn't make this money. My husband's making the money. So I better not splurge on the thing that I really want. And that's why I feel like those things, you can come up with all kinds of extreme couponing type methods, but I feel like that's bad for us in what it's telling us we're worth. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's a tricky thing, right? Like I've actually had some guests on this show where we've talked about how important it is to invest in different aspects of yourself and your career. So I had a woman named Dara Lamb who has her own custom clothing business for women where she makes very high-end suits for women because she said there's nothing really available for high-performing women in the marketplace, and that's true. And when I'm trying to shop for very professional-looking clothes, everything is, all the dresses are too short, all this, you know, right. it's like... Oh, um, you mean you don't want, like, a super short skirt from BB to go into a power... I don't know why. Her whole thing was if you invest in one power suit, you're investing in yourself and you're sending everybody the message that you know, you're worth it and you're valuable and you've invested in your career. And then there's all these studies that show that how you dress actually does affect your performance and your confidence and all of these things, right? So I've done a series of investing in myself type purchases this year. And I'm like, I feel like they've really been working in terms of elevating my career status and, you know, taking my career to the next level. But I haven't exactly gotten the money back from it yet. (laughs) And I'm like, when do I stop with this investing in myself thing? I'm constantly having these trade-offs like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny to listen to the voices in your head that talk to you around any given purchase like that. And especially, you know, I remember when I had the babies and I would buy clothes, like really cheaply made clothes at Old Navy because... I just needed to get at my boobs all day, you know, when you're nursing. And I'm like, I don't want to wear clothes like this all the time, but it needs to be baggy and I need to be able to button down the front. And I remember feeling like, oh, these these clothes, they're so dumpy and they're, but they're temporary. And then when you stop nursing, you're like, I'm going to wear, you know, you just want to invest in yourself. You're so excited to wear things with buttons and (laughs) zippers and, you know, things that zip up the back. It's so amazing. And so... I recently, my daughter needed, uh, the youngest is one, and I decided that I wanted an umbrella stroller. And so I went to Babies R Us because I wanted to actually touch them and feel them and not buy it on Amazon. And the one that I wanted had this specific feature is that it reclined all the way was from McLaren. And you know McLaren mm-hmm. is like, 
the name in umbrella stroller. They've been at it a long time, but it's one of the most expensive ones if you want like the quality umbrella strollers. Now the cheaper brands now like Chico or Graco are making umbrella strollers too, but they didn't have these specific few features that I really wanted. And I remember thinking to myself, well, she's the last one. I won't use it on another baby. And I don't know, is it worth it? Is, is that a splurge? And I just sort of listened to all the things I said in my head. And I knew that if I bought the cheaper one, I'd be back four months later for the one that I really wanted, which happens so often when you go cheap on yourself. And so I thought it was a really interesting exercise for me to just observe because I was going to buy that one anyway. And I ended up buying the McLaren, but I just wanted to hear what I said to myself. And I was like, that's such an interesting exercise. And so I've been sort of doing that every time I go shopping at the market, even grocery shopping. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Should I get the cheap thing? But I want the organic thing. And I'm just listening to the voices behind that are telling me what you're not worth that. You can't do that. You'll get in trouble for that. You know, like as if my husband's going to be like, why did you buy the organic apples? Or, you know, (laughs) like there's, he never, ever, ever comments on my purchases. So why I think that in my head, that there's this some other voice that I'll get in trouble or something is so interesting. We all make up such crap in our heads. That's not a new revelation, but I just think it's interesting to listen when you make a purchase and not, not listen to it, but observe it. So there's that voice in our head that often is not rational, right? But there is also some rationality behind it in the sense of, you know, maybe you really would like that feature of the McLaren stroller, but maybe really is not in your budget, right? right? So then then this is the situation of focusing much more on your wealth building instead of your budget cutting so that you will have it in your budget, right? right? I mean, And because we hit our freedom number, I did not, I was like, yeah, I can afford this. You know, like my rational mind, but there's been other times in my life where I knew we couldn't afford it. And, you know, you don't want to put it on a credit card and just think, well, I'm worth it. And that's what I'm telling the universe, right? Because you're also telling the universe that I'm not a good steward of my money. And that's a bigger message. And so I remember listening to this one great podcast. I can't remember the name of this woman. She's like a, she thinks about money in a very like esoteric spiritual way, like crystals and auras and all of that stuff. And I think she's amazing. And she's like, you know, money likes to go to people who count it. Money goes to people who take care of it. It's like, you know, this whole idea that money exists in physical form, it doesn't. Only about 4% of the money in our economy actually exists in physical form. Most money does not exist. It's like a concept in a cloud based on this concept of Federal Reserve. So if thoughts become things, right, and you really manifest your daily life, and money is nothing more than a thought, then your belief about money reflects itself in your actual bank account which is a fictitious thing, right? You don't own that money. You own the concept of that money. That's a lot of the kind of similar thinking that was in the interview that I did with Jen Sincero in her book about your badass and making money. But it's also that other point that you made about just putting everything on my credit card and being like, I'm worth it. It's going to manifest success for me and I'm worth it. Like there's also the other point where you do need to be a good steward of it, as you said. So I feel like there's a tension there. Maybe. I mean, it depends how you approach that. You know, I don't, I like numbers and spreadsheets and I don't let the numbers scare me, even when they weren't what they were now. When we got started, they were pretty scary numbers. 
But I didn't let that make me think that we couldn't build from there. And I think that's maybe some people see the initial number and they're like, ugh, sucks. I'm just going to use a credit card, right? But if you do that, you're investing in liabilities. And so it comes from not only confidence, but competence. Competence in managing your money. Right, competence. I mean, if you think about the messages that we see, like if you're watching football on Sundays and you see a TD Ameritrade or whatever, it's always men talking to other men about money. There's that one commercial that bugs me so much where the husband's sitting by a fountain in his lunch break, presumably, and he's texting his wife and she's like, oh, so-and-so got cancer. You know, his wife doesn't know what she's going to do. Would we be okay if one of us got cancer? And he thinks back, oh, we have Ameritrade or whatever. And then he texts her back, we're fine, honey. And that's the most condescending crap because she's not involved. She has no idea until someone's sick. She's never been any, she's never had any clue about where they were. Not only is she not helping to plan, but she doesn't even have a clue. She's presumably at like a pottery class or whatever. That's And it's just like, you're assuming women aren't involved. And I know it's a chicken or egg type of thing because a lot of women are too scared to get involved. Because of messages like that. And so it's up to us to break the cycle. That's really sexist commercial, but that's also what I had talked about with Sally Krawcheck is, you know, the whole financial industry is just, it's it's all like men working in the industry. It's marketed to men and it's also all done kind of like male speak. Yeah. And so that's what she's doing with Elevest, trying to create that platform that caters more to the way women, women look at things. But like, when you look at the spreadsheets in the beginning and you felt like the numbers weren't good, what made you think, okay, well, I still can build wealth? Because I think what most people do is they think we're just living paycheck to paycheck. We don't have any money to invest. You know, we're just getting by every month and I can't invest because I don't have any money to invest. Yeah. How did you get over that? Well, we were living paycheck to paycheck too. We didn't have a ton of money set aside to invest in something, but we saved. Well, we had investment accounts. So I started there. I started just with our stock accounts that, you know, we had either saved up for from an old job, we rolled into an IRA or we had some money to work with there. But we didn't have like a chunk of cash in an accessible account that we could then use to invest in real estate. So we saved for that. And then my husband was on a flight one day and he was sitting next to a couple that was going to New Zealand for like three months. And he's like, what do you guys do that you can do this? And they're like, we're real estate investors. And he was like, teach me how to do that. And so what his specialty became was finding off-market deals that you don't have to pay a realtor for. And they're single family investment homes that you can rent out to a working class family. And like we started with a, a suburb of Detroit And because this guy on the flight was like, this is a great market. This is where we're investing. He's like, I'm going to do that too. I think our first property cost us about $40,000. And it took us a while. But once we had that first win, then we were like, okay, look, we've got now monthly income coming in. That's amazing. Let's figure out, let's strategize how to do the next thing. And so we learned, like I said, we learned it all from podcasts. So I would make sure, I, I approached every step like a journalist. Like, I don't know about this. Listen to the podcast, do the research okay, you're right. That's a good thing. Let's do it. And then that became two properties. And then that became three properties. And so we sort of leveraged from there. And we got a private loan for a package of them. We've done, like I said, so many different tricks, but it was a matter of, I couldn't figure out where to go next if I hadn't been tracking the numbers. I had to know where we were. And then I had to just be open to the next thing that we could use. But we didn't, like I said, we couldn't go to a bank 
which I'm glad for because we wouldn't have been able to find these great deals. A, a bank's not going to loan inside an LLC. Like a bank's going to have all of these other requirements that wouldn't have we wouldn't have owned these properties based on a bank. But we had to save up enough. But also at the same time, we were making sure that the money that was coming in from our paychecks was not being funneled towards high liability bank products, high interest bank products. So that's when I, you know, we refinanced some loans. We got a home equity line of credit and used it to pay off our primary mortgage. We've since moved. So now we have another primary mortgage. But at the time we were able to pay off that mortgage with a home equity line of credit. So it was just like the teeter-totter. We took a low interest product and whacked it at a high interest product. So little by little, one step at a time is how we did it. And so you're really good at the spreadsheets and the numbers, but I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are like, I'm not good at that. So is that why they need to, you have a company that helps people with this, right? Well, right? we can we help can people find and identify off-market investments. That's that's what we do. We have a team of people that's finding these houses, rehabbing them. We can get you in a house. And then we have a podcast and a blog that will help you think of ways that you might find money that you hadn't thought of. Like I said, the 401k loan or whatever, home equity line of credit or a private note with your Uncle Bob. There are a ton of ways to do this. And so we do help people do that. But if your kind of attitude is like, I'm not going to be good at that, I'm never going to be good at that, you have to figure out what you are good in your family and you have to think of your family as a team. My husband can't do the spreadsheets like me. It bugs me like crazy because he'll see the spreadsheets and like change something or change the font or, you know, I like them in the different colors and I'm like, what are you doing? That's my thing. I love it. But I'm not the one who's going to be out finding an investment. He's right now, actually, today he's in Indianapolis with our investments, with our property manager and, you know, doing the thing. That would bore me to tears. I do not want to do that. So you have to figure out what you're good at in your house and delegate. Yeah, I'm not good with spreadsheets. I'll have to do <laughs> Do you want to go look at properties? <laughs> yes, yes. I don't know if my husband's good at spreadsheets either, but uh, he probably is definitely better than I am. But, you know, I mean, I do a lot of giveaways on my blog of spreadsheets that I think that will help you get started. And so you don't have to make them yourself. I can sort of help you with that kind of stuff. And there's there's software that's good that can do it as well. You know, I mean, the main thing is that you have to make sure that you are keeping track of your net worth. Keep a balance sheet. Update it at least every year, if not a couple times a year, and tell yourself how you're growing because this your balance sheet from one to the next is the story of where your money's gone and the decisions that you've made, right? And mm-hmm. so if you don't have that story, you're not tracking that story, then you can't build from there. We make all decisions in our house based on the balance sheet. And I think a lot of People are just so overwhelmed with all the tasks on their plate of doing their job plus managing their family. I mean, this is something that I'm assuming a lot of people don't do just because they don't feel like they have time to do it. But it's another one of those things where if you actually took the time to do it, you could save yourself a lot of time in the long run, right? Because you wouldn't have to be dialing in to work the full-time job all the time. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, we watch a lot of Netflix these days. So can you watch one fewer Netflix show and teach yourself one personal finance skill? Just one. You know, I mean, a lot of times I did it on a elliptical machine where I was reading a book about something. I don't think that I'm a super person, super woman. I, I just took it step by step, very small steps until all of a sudden I have all of these tools 
that I've employed. And so now I want to help other people. Not, I'm not saying you should do exactly everything that I did. Definitely not because finances like jeans, yours fit differently than mine. But if you teach yourself one new thing, you break your cycle of doing what the banks want you to do, you know, you'll get there little by little. And if something feels boring to you, don't do it. I want to ask you one question that I ask all my guests, which is what is something that you know now that you wish you would have known sooner in your career path? I wish that I had that I had funneled more of my paycheck dollars into performing assets. I think it's so easy when you get that first job when you're young and then you build your life around it, like, okay, this is the rent I can afford, this is the car payment I can afford. And, you know, I, I didn't allocate enough of my money to buy something that would stick around as a performing asset. And so I just wish that I had really thought about every dollar that comes in. Do I want to buy something that's a liability or do I want to buy a consumable good, right? Like a glass of wine or groceries, or can I push this dollar into a performing asset that will stick around forever? And besides real estate, what are some other examples of performing assets? You could buy art, is a performing asset. You could invest in a bakery down the street if you have a friend that's a baker or if you're a baker. You can lend somebody money and create a note for someone else to buy real estate. You could invest in, I was reading Tom Realwright's book called Tax-Free Wealth, which is an amazing book. He talks about local organic farming, that if that's something that's uh, part of your value system, there are a lot of ways to, it's a very tax-friendly way to invest your money. Well, Natalie, this has been such an interesting conversation, and I really hope that our listeners take your advice to heart, because I know a lot of us, especially us working women, are just burning ourselves out with exhaustion and not feeling like we're getting anywhere yeah, I financially. Get that. I get that. Believe me. So if they take your advice, that could actually help get over that hurdle of really building wealth and not feeling like they're trapped in a job that just covers the bills so that they're able to pursue what they would do once they have that freedom number, right? Whether it's even just a, another job or whether it's a, a different passion. I certainly want our listeners to have the ability to do that. So where can they follow you and check you out? I know you mentioned you have a podcast. What's so the name of the podcast? It's actually Investing in Real Estate with Clayton Morris. It's my husband's podcast because, like I said, he's the one who learned real estate investing through podcasts. But I am on the show every Wednesday. We do a a show together where we talk about how we implemented certain ways in which to manage our money or find a real estate investment or buy that investment. And then I have my own blog on nataliemorris.com and it's Natalie without an E. You can thank my mother for that. And so, yeah, like I said, because we have hit this financial freedom, both of us in 2018 now really want to help other people to find ways to make it work for them too, either real estate or otherwise. I just want people to not be afraid and really take control and use the same skills that they use in their day job for building inside of their family. So hopefully that message resonates. I appreciate you uh, having me on to share it. Oh, thank you. No, I think it will resonate. People are feeling, a lot of people are feeling that their day job is not advancing their wealth. So I know I'm going to check out the podcast and check out your blog and, and get myself more knowledgeable about a lot of these things. So, Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for joining me. No problem. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.